Find our places. Let's take our Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. As you're doing that, we are approaching the end of this Bible book study. It's been awesome, and there's a lot of things yet to go before we're quite done. As you're turning there, let me, let me just set it up this morning with, with this idea. I don't know if anybody else is like me. Typically, I always want to say, hopefully you're not like me, but there are some common characteristics that I think we all share. And one of the things that bugs me is a lot of those nutty infomercials. How about you? You know, they, they get on there and they'll, they'll spend a bunch of money for a whole half hour show telling you about how great their product is and all that sort of thing. And some ridiculous claims that they make with some of those. I mean, some stuff is just products, you know, but like I saw one that was like, just take this pill, you know, and all your fat will melt away. <laughs> and, and man, how I wish that were true, right? But it doesn't, that's a bunch of baloney. That doesn't work that way. And your response, like my response, should be, oh, yeah, we'll prove it. And uh, so I particularly like some of the news channels or sometimes there's programs. You ever seen them where people will go and they'll buy those products and then they'll test them out and they'll say, oh, this one really works and that one doesn't work at all and blah, blah, blah. I like those shows. I like the shows that test them. I like the shows that prove them. Well, that's kind of the thing that we're looking at because in the Bible, well, what we see is that the Bible makes some amazing claims, right, as well. And there are some of those amazing claims that are made in the Scriptures that, well, some people have trouble believing them, don't they? Uh, that's what's happening in Corinth here with the resurrection, specifically in chapter number 15. So God gave us this chapter in the Bible that stands clearly as the greatest single chapter on the subject of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Without question, and we saw it last week, it was Easter Sunday, it's the greatest single human event in all of human history. Well, interestingly, Jesus Christ said and of himself, or the scriptures say of Jesus Christ himself, in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. That's pretty interesting. How's that? being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus Christ certainly died. He certainly was buried. He certainly rose again from the grave. And when he did, he was seen by over 500 living eyewitnesses. That's some pretty good proof. I mean, if you're in a court of law and you can get a couple of people that witness something, well, you've you got a good case. Over 500, as we saw in the first eight verses of this chapter. And so the first eight verses that we looked at last week, we titled Witnesses of the Resurrection, as it listed the different apostles and the different people. But over 500 people that saw Jesus Christ alive during that 40-day period after his resurrection, before his ascension up into heaven. And you know, if you were alive back at that time, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, that would have been current events. That would have been on the news, right? I mean, that would have been something that just happened. And if you had trouble believing it, well, you could have just found one of those people. You were probably in fairly close proximity to be able to find somebody who at least knew somebody, and you could go talk to them. Tell me what you saw and that sort of thing. Well, we're going to continue this idea, and the title for today is The Proof of the Resurrection. And, and Paul continues this thought from verse 9. We're going to go down to verse 19 eventually. So there were skeptics in Paul's day, and actually the fact that there were skeptics in Paul's day serves us well today because, well, today there's also skeptics of the resurrection. But now, because of that, we have God's inspired word on this subject, right? So now we have the answer. The question is, how can we be so sure that Jesus Christ really rose from the grave. And in different forms, you may get that question when you attempt to witness to people. When you share with them the gospel, and the gospel we now know is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel means good news, and it's only good because of the resurrection part. It's not good because of the death part, and it's not good because of the buried part. It's good because of the resurrection part, right? Well, the gospel, man, how can we be so sure? How can you be so sure? People ask that question. Well, we're going to see some proof of it, as is laid out by the Holy Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul. Follow along. I'm going to start reading in verse number 9. 
For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be, that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So it's a little repetitive coming through, but he makes a rock-solid case, and we're going to see some solid proofs of the resurrection. Let's go to the Lord and pray, and then we'll get into it. So Heavenly Father, again, thank you for the revelation of your word, and thank you that you've preserved it for us perfectly, and that we can know exactly what we need to know, because you've made sure we have a copy in our language, and we're very thankful for that. So in this particular subject, I do pray, Lord, specifically for anybody who may be struggling with their full and complete understanding of the validity of the event of the resurrection and its implications on our lives and the requirements placed on us as a result of that understanding. I pray, Lord Jesus, that today anybody who would be listening, that you would remove any existing doubt, that they would understand that your resurrection is true and that therefore it means something to every single man and woman, boy and girl. Lord, we need to be sure of the things we need to be sure of and help us to settle once and for all the surety of this thing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, proof of the resurrection. There's going to be three different proofs that we're going to see. They come right out of the text. They're fairly clear. The first one is because God's grace is not in vain. Because God's grace is not in vain. Let's start by defining the term vain. To understand the word vain as it's used, it it could mean unprofitable or of no value, useless, wasted. God's grace is not wasted. God's grace is not useless. God's grace is not of no value. It is not of no profit, for example. Uh, you might find the term vain or vanity used frequently in the book of Ecclesiastes when you read through it, when it talks about everything that's under the sun. In other words, physical life is just vain. It's just vanity. All that matters is that we fear God and keep his commandments. That's what it says at the end of that book. And so all of life is, well, it's just fleeting. I mean, there's really not that much to it. Don't put too much stock in it under the sun. That's Ecclesiastes. God's grace is not those things. God's grace is certainly not in vain. So Paul begins starting in verse 9, of course, referring back to verse number 8. He's referring to himself. Last of all, Jesus Christ resurrected. He said he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. And so his view of himself going forward in the next few verses, well, it's very humble, isn't it? Paul's very aware of who he was before he got saved. He says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles. And I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle, because before I got saved, I persecuted the church. I persecuted the church. Of all the people God gave grace to, to be able to give a platform and an opportunity to serve Him and to be used of Him and to take His Word and to see people saved and to start churches and travel around the world and all the things Paul got to do, he's like, that's a real head-scratcher. How in the world the Lord would choose me? I was the dirtiest of the dirty. I was the vilest of the vile. And yet the Lord gave grace. You know that that view of Himself, by the way, that was not just feigned humility for the sake of a good sermon. Uh, that was accurate. That was completely and totally accurate. Check out Paul's resume coming through the book of Acts. Just after the first martyr of the church, Stephen, one of the deacons of the church of Jerusalem, was martyred in Acts chapter 7, we see in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1, and Saul, as his name was at that time, was consenting unto his, Stephen's, death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. Look in verse number 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house 
and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. He was like secret service, door-to-door, dragging people out. You believe in Jesus Christ, we're dragging you literally out to prison. That was his life. Acts chapter 9, first two verses, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, this way meaning the believers in Jesus Christ, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. I want permission, governmental authority, to arrest anybody who believes this stuff. That's who Paul was. He gives his testimony of his life later on in his ministry. It's recorded in Acts chapter 22. He's speaking to a big group of Jews. And verse number four, he says, And I persecuted this way. This way, you recall, it's the church. I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And again, he gives a testimony another time in Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 9. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. He went after anybody and everybody who believed this way. Now, we could get off in tangents of how governments that are controlled by evil spirits use religious means to persecute real believers, and that's a reality in life today in different places in the world, right? But really, all I want you to see is that Paul was so, he said, I was exceeding mad. That doesn't mean angry. It means he was crazed. It means he was out of control. But he was sanctioned to go do it. He gives his testimony in multiple places. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13. For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion. In other words, you know how I used to live when I was a pork-abstaining, law-abiding Jew before his salvation? How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it? Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 6 concerning zeal. How zealous was I as a Pharisee? Well, so much so that I persecuted the church. So Paul was a Jewish anti-Christian mercenary of sorts, was he not? That's who he was. That's a pretty tough resume. That's a, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty bad lineup of things in his past. I mean, I don't know what any of you have ever done in your life, and I don't care. You certainly don't have to tell me, but whatever it is you've done, and however bad it's been, and I'm sure you've probably done some bad things. I know I have. It's, it's probably not that. You probably didn't do what he did, right? Listen, Paul was arguably the worst sinner. He was arguably the worst sinner, right? I think that's a fair statement. Since God inspired Paul to say in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. In other words, what I'm about to tell you, man, this is right on, and you better believe it because it's true. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. I'm chief. Nobody's a worse sinner than I am. Now, any one of us may have that statement to say about ourselves, and if you do, you probably have the right perspective, whether it's actually historically accurate or not. That's kind of the attitude you ought to have if you intend to receive the grace of God in your life, right? God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Paul received God's grace. God did something in his life, amen, and he changed him. He changed him, and he gave him a mission. So you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you look in verse number 10, it says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm the one that's not even worthy to be called an apostle, but it's by God's grace that I'm an apostle. It's by God's grace that he's made me who I am today. I'm not the man I used to be. He's made me new. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. God's grace 
is not in vain. And it becomes a proof of the validity of the resurrection. In fact, so much so in Paul's life that God made Paul to be our example, to be our pattern for Christian living, right? So the very next verse in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, How be it for this cause, what cause? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, for this cause. Because I'm the chiefest of sinners, I obtain mercy. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. God stepped in, changed the narrative. So Paul certainly was arguably the worst sinner, but Paul is arguably now the best Christian. He's arguably the very best Christian. And, and you know what? It's all by God's grace. Amen. It's all by God's grace. And the thing that you need to understand today, and I'm sure most of you already understand it, but man, I mean, this is just so important. It's worth being said again. God's grace isn't only for the most extreme examples, you know. I mean, you don't have to have lived such a vile, decrepit life, just a persecuting, violent, murderous life, all in the name of religion. You don't have to have been so antagonistic. You might just be a run-of-the-mill sinner. You still need God's grace. God's grace is for you too, friend. It's for all of us. So in verse number 11, what does he say? Whether therefore it be I or they, the other apostles, the other 500, whoever it might be, right? Let me ask you a question. What did God save you from? Those of you that know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, for me it was over 35 years ago, but it's not that long that I can't remember. I can remember how I was. I can remember what my life was like. And you know what's so amazing about it? In a, in a general way, God actually looked forward in time and recorded in the book of Ephesians, and chapter number 2, my testimony. Have you ever read my testimony? Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse number 1. And you, Jeff, hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Oh, you know what that means? That means that's not just my testimony. That's all your testimony, too. Because spiritually speaking, before the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what you have done, whether your sins have been many or whether they have been few, whether they be judged in society as particularly extreme or whether they be fairly accepted, Anything you have done that is not done of the Spirit of God is against Him. That's what it is. And ultimately, you are surrendered to the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we see. That's what every unsaved life is. That's your life. That's what, that's what God saves you from. How does He save you? Well, Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3 tell you how you were. But thank God for verse 4, right? I love these first two words. But God, he stepped in. I mean, God, if God didn't initiate, if God didn't step in, you would still be dead in trespasses and sins. You would still be in the condition that you were in. But you're not in that condition anymore. Why? But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Don't forget, by grace you're saved. By grace you're saved. You know verses 8 and 9. By grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Listen, if you have eternal life today, it's not because you did anything special. You're not going to heaven because you're so awesome. You're going to heaven because you're not and He is. That's why. And the quicker you get that view of yourself and the quicker you get that view of God and understand the transforming power of the resurrected life, you understand the grace of God. And you understand that the grace of God is not wasted on you. It's not in vain. So that's what you were saved from, and that's how you got saved. But what did he save you for? Well, of course, it's the very next verse. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, 
which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So he gave grace to save your wretched soul from an eternity in hell and to put your feet on the solid ground on the rock of Jesus Christ and give you eternity. But there's something to be done in the meantime. You've got work to do, friend. He gave you grace with a purpose, and that purpose is that you would serve him. You know what that means? That means when God does something, he does it with a goal in mind. God doesn't waste his grace. His grace is not in vain. He wants to achieve an end. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 1 says this, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. And then he goes on and begins to describe a life that demonstrates the full utilization of God's grace. You interested in that? You interested in what it would look like to have your life fully utilize God's grace? I'm glad you're saying yep now. Let's read in verse 4. But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God. Here we go. In much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. That's the life of God's faithful servant. That's the life that fulfills the purpose of God giving you his grace. You know what that means? Well, that means that a saved sinner who won't serve the Lord has squandered God's grace. You realize where you've come from. You realize what he's done in your life. And you won't leverage that. You won't utilize that. You won't turn that into something. Listen, your changed life and your ability to serve him is only possible because the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the gospel in you. There's no other way that any of that could possibly have happened. Therefore, the resurrection is true because God works on purpose. He works on purpose. It works in the lives of broken people. Resurrection is new life. It's new life. So 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And you may have had a very pleasant, law-abiding life before Christ. You're still a sinner, and you know it. But you may not have been a menace to society. <laughs> but you know what? I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you've done or not done. It's good news to know. Whatever that was is passed away. And whatever's ahead, it's brand new. That is a new life. The Bible calls it being born again. That's new life. That's resurrection power. That's what it is. That's what he's done. You get a new start. You get a new you. Now go do something with it. God's grace wasn't in vain in Paul's life because he labored more than everyone else. Now you go and prove that God didn't waste his grace on you. Because every changed life is proof of the resurrection. Man, that's pretty good. I mean, y'all just want to stop and pray? I mean, we should just, I wish we should get right with God right here. All right, well, let's keep going. I mean, there's more good stuff. Hang in there. Okay, number two. Because the apostles' preaching is not in vain. That's the next reason. The apostles' preaching is not in vain. So in verse number 12, right, it goes on. It says, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Man, if we preached it, why are you, why are you saying it didn't exist if we preached it? Well, it's interesting. He says we preached it. Verse 11, he says he preached it. We preached it, meaning the apostles, Paul, the apostles, Cephas, the others, right? And then he enters in, starting here in verse 12. He's got... 
seven statements that use the word if. If this happens, then this. If this, then that. If this, then that. And he's using a logical construction. And he's putting it together. And what he's really dealing with is this dilemma. And this is in your notes. The dilemma is, can we literally believe what is preached? He said, hey, we preached it unto you. Why are you doubting it? Why are you saying the opposite, right? So the apostles' preaching, you need to understand, was to reveal God's word to the people, right? Don't forget where we've come in this study of 1 Corinthians because, y'all got your pencils ready? We're in chapter number 15, and chapter number 15 comes right after 14, which comes after and 12. So 12, 13, and 14 are the chapters that we've been spending three, four months teaching on spiritual gifts. And among the spiritual gifts, we had some temporary gifts that were of a speaking nature. They were prophetic in nature. And the office of the apostle was one of those that is a revelatory gift. God used the office of the apostles to speak and to preach new divine truth that would ultimately be recorded for us so that we could have scripture. The apostles preaching not in vain is not just, man, that guy had a good sermon. The apostles preaching is not in vain is God's word doesn't return void. That's what that is. We are telling you the very words of God. How are you going around saying it's not happening? How's that possible? 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men, like the apostles of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Inspiration is speaking. So these men preached the Word of God. It became then recorded and canonized as Scripture. Right, The prophecy of the Scripture came originally through the apostles' preaching. Titus chapter 1 and verse number 3. But hath in due times manifest his word through preaching, which is committed unto me as an apostle, according to the commandment of God our Savior. So we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says in verse 17, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Right? Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. It's the preaching. It's the apostles' preaching that was the actual, literal, powerful word of God being spoken to those people at that time. And Paul is just incredulous, thinking, we have preached this truth to you. We have given you God's very words. How be there some among you who say it didn't happen? How is that possible? 1 Corinthians 1.21 For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of writing. No, by preaching to save them that believe. So since the apostles' preaching is effectively the word of God, the real question should be, should biblical interpretation be literal or symbolic? That's really the question. Should biblical interpretation be literal? Or should it be symbolic? This is a big debate in theological circles. Go to the seminaries around the country and study under some of these great minds. And Well, symbolic is a pretty popular application. It's not the right one. We read 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, you don't get to decide. You, you're, you've not been given the job description to decide. God is going to decide. All, what you need to do is, is to prepare yourself to study and compare the Word of God, right? So 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman, that needeth not to be ashamed. It is hard work. That's why people don't do it. Rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, like a cancer. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred. Why? Saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. 
The idea of the resurrection in this context is not the past resurrection of Jesus. It's the coming resurrection of all of us based on the foundational beginnings of the resurrection of Jesus. And they're saying, yeah, you guys missed it already. It already passed. Too, too bad for you. <laughs> and they're overthrowing the faith of some. They made a big mistake. They made a big mistake. You see, they took this idea of a coming, second coming, and a, and a literal future resurrection of believers, and they spiritualized it. They spiritualized it. They decided to say, well, you know, it, Christ is raised in my heart when I received him. And they make up stuff like this. That's a real problem. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 20, we see that fellow, Hymenaeus again. This time he's with a guy named Alexander. It says, Whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Why? Because allegorical, symbolic Bible interpretation is blasphemy. That's why. And that's what you need to understand. And this is important in the idea of being the proof of the resurrection. Because if God said that's what happened, that's what happened. You are to understand it literally as that's the way it happened. Let me just ask you a question in case this isn't sitting exactly right with you. If you have this allegorical, symbolic predisposition towards the Scriptures, if that's your method of interpretation, how do you really know what's true? How can you have any idea what's true? And at the end of the day, and this is always the bottom line, what's the final authority? Well, I can tell you what it is, if that's your method of interpretation. It's you. And whether you thought it through that way or not, that's what it is. You are putting yourself above the Scriptures, and you're deciding to pick and choose what you think you want that to represent and symbolize. And you know what it's never going to symbolize? It's never going to symbolize wherever it is you're blowing it. That's what it's never going to symbolize. Because you're not willing to accept it literally. And that's the only way you can accept it. It's the only way you can possibly know if anything's true. And doesn't it make sense that that symbolic, allegorical approach to Scripture would be exactly what the devil would want you to think? So that you really can't have any idea what is truth anymore? Go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, in general, if, if generally speaking nobody raises from the dead, then in specific, well, then Christ didn't raise from the dead. In other words, if we were to accept that premise that nobody ever raises from the dead, well, then, well, then Christ is still dead. Oh, and our preaching is vain. It's a waste of time. Your faith is vain. It has no profit to you whatsoever. Oh, and by the way, we're all a bunch of liars because we're false witnesses of something that apparently never happened. That's what he's saying. But that's clearly not the case. God gave us his word like he gave us his grace on purpose. So God's word for our life, and this is in your notes, just a couple of things to consider today. First and foremost, friends, you need to understand God's word for your life, it's, it's for our good. It's for our good. God didn't give us his word to ruin our fun. He did it to protect us. And there are literally scores of places I could have referenced. I just wanted to give you one. You can run the references all through the Bible. Deuteronomy 6.24, And the Lord commanded us, how? By his word, to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. Why? For our good always. By the way, that phrase appears over and over and over as though you couldn't get it that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. God's word is for our good, and God's word is to be understood literally. John 14, 2, we saw this last week. I love this verse. Jesus Christ said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. It's literally what I am doing. I'm telling you exactly how it is. I'm telling you where I'm going and what I'm going to do when I get there and what you need to do and what I'll do after that. And I'll come back and get you and I'll bring you there and you'll have a place with me. If it weren't that way, I'd have told you the way it is. It's to be understood literally. It's to be understood literally. Listen, it's not that there's never any place where the scriptures are to be symbolic. There are a few but it's only symbolic when he says so. Revelation chapter 1, 
Verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So was that Jesus Christ walking in a Catholic church? I mean, do you have a bunch of candlesticks everywhere? No, that's not what he's talking about, because he defines for you the symbolism he's using in verse number 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Well, there you have it. I mean, he's using a little bit of symbolism and he gives you a little bit of freedom to think about it for about six verses. And then he tells you. And then you can believe it literally. Listen, it's only an allegory when he says so. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. He was of the bondwoman, was born after the flesh, and he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? Okay, he actually had two sons, but they actually also represent something bigger. For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Agar, Hagar, for this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is. He's describing the allegory, right? Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory, that kind of a story. And is in bondage with her children, verse 26. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she that which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. See, he's trying to paint a picture for you. But as then he that was born after the flesh, Ishmael, right, persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall, ha shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. It's a picture of our salvation. And it's a picture of what is required to be a child of the promise. So it's only symbolic when he tells you. It's only an allegory when he tells you. And it's only a parable when he tells you. And so all the parables have something like this. I selected Matthew 13, 18. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. Well, now I know it's a parable. I looked at last week, we saw Luke chapter 16. And people want to say Luke 16 is a parable. And the story is the rich man and Lazarus. And they both die and they go to the heart of the earth and one's in torments and flames and the other's in Abraham. But they say, well, that's just symbolic. That's just, that didn't really happen. No, I'm sorry. It does not say anywhere that it's symbolic. It doesn't say it's an allegory. It doesn't say it's a parable. You are to understand the story of Luke 16 literally. That's how you are. You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Well, I don't really care. It doesn't really matter what you believe. Look, the Bible's really easy to understand. Now, whether you believe, it's up to you. I hope you believe it. God wrote it for your good, remember? So the resurrection is true because God's word is proven. That's how you know the resurrection is true. James 4, 5. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelt in us lusteth envy? No, it doesn't say anything in vain. Isaiah 55, 10. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. God's grace works, and God's word works. And those are proofs for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The third one, because your faith is not in vain. Because your faith is not in vain. So again, looking back in verses 16 and 17 and 18, if the dead rise not in general, then Christ is not raised in specific. If that's the case, we're all in a big heap of trouble. I mean, you can propagate your favorite philosophy and debate club all you want. You can argue with people on street corners all you want. But when you're laying in the hospital bed with the tubes coming out of you and the monitors on your chest and you're not sure how much longer you're going to make it, you're going to hold fast to that philosophy, are you? Are you really? Uh, it would be unwise. It would be unwise. And I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm telling you, if that's your philosophy of life, take it to its logical conclusion. And its logical conclusion is very, very dark. It's very dark. There's no hope for any of us if that's true. 
It says, your faith is vain, and you're yet in your sins. If there was no death and resurrection to pay for your sins, well, too bad. There's no hope for you. And verse 18 means that, well, everybody else that's ever, ever believed before and has already passed away, fallen asleep, was physically passed away, well, they're perished. They're gone. There's no coming back for them. There's nothing else. You know John 3.16, don't you? Right? God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. They're not coming back. If they perish, they're not coming back. But they're coming back. They'll have everlasting life, right? Jesus died so you wouldn't perish. You could argue that perish means going to hell. They're not coming back if they perish. But your faith's not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, we saw last week in verse number 2. By which also ye are saved, speaking of the gospel, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Well, you need to have placed your faith into what Paul preached. And now we understand that what Paul preached was actually the new revelation of God's word. So if you place your faith in the gospel, the word of God concerning the resurrection, well, then it's going to work just fine. So faith works only when it's placed in the right object. Faith works only when it's placed in the right object. You see, you need to understand that just having faith is not enough. A lot of people have faith. A lot of people have a lot of faith. A lot of people have so much faith, well, they're willing to believe crazy stuff. But faith in faith isn't good enough. Hope in hope isn't good enough. Loving love isn't good enough. You have to put your faith in the right thing. So there's an old diagram that was used in a gospel track by a campus organization that I put in your notes for you. And it shows a little train. Do we have a little train diagram? Does that pop up on here? So this is the way it needs to work. The fact of the truth of God's word is the engine that pulls the train down the tracks. The thing that makes the train move in the direction it needs to move is the engine. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the coal car, and it's certainly not the caboose, right? The train moves because of the fact that the engine works. Your faith, that's the coal car in the old trains that had coal-driven engines, right? Steam, steam engines. And you shovel the coal into the furnace, and it, the coal burns and makes steam and turns a turbine and turns the wheels and blah, blah, blah. The train goes down the tracks, right? So the idea is, is you put your faith into the fact of God's Word, well, then that train's going to move, right? And the feelings, your feelings that you have in your life, the good days and the bad days and all the things that happen, well, that's just the caboose. I mean, that's just... That's just a car that's hooked on. He's just along for the ride. Let me tell you what you don't want to do. What you don't want to do is run this thing backwards. You don't want to run this train backwards because you're going to crash, right? You go to run this train backwards, you start putting your faith in your feelings. Hello? Uh, you have just nullified fact. You have taken it out of the equation altogether. You better make sure that you're putting your faith in the proper object of your faith. So you're putting it in the Word of God as it concerns the person of God in Jesus Christ. That's what you put your faith in. And if you do that, well, friends, I don't care how bad your day's going. I don't care how bad your circumstances are. I don't care how miserable the things are that you're struggling with. And I'm sure they are very real. We all go through them. It doesn't change one little bit about the fact of the truth of who God is and what he's done, and you have hooked your wagon to him, and you're good. Your faith is never in vain. It's never in vain. And that's a critically important thing for you to understand. You need to get that. It's kind of like a story. It reminds me of a, a guy who spends his whole life working hard and climbing the ladder of success only to come to the end of his life and having reached the very top of the ladder to find out that, well, the ladder was leaning on the wrong building. 
and he spent his whole life doing it. Well, he just had a lot of faith. He had a lot of hope. He worked really hard. He had the wrong object. He had the wrong building that he was leaning on. A lot of people have faith, but what do they have faith in? What do they have faith in? The New Testament records that phrase, faith in something. You want to guess how many times? Pick your favorite Bible number. It's a hint. Seven. Good, good answer. Four times, faith in Christ. Then we have faith in God. Then we have faith in His name and faith in His blood. Got a theme? We got a theme. And we know that faith is the opposite of sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. And Hebrews 11, 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. So faith is putting your trust in the truth, the fact of God's word, even when you can't necessarily see or understand it. You just choose to believe it. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so that's how he works. That kind of faith is never in vain. If it's placed in the fact and the truth of God's word concerning his Christ and the gospel of the resurrection. So the third proof, the resurrection is true because God's reward is promised. When you put your faith in the gospel, you're saved. It's guaranteed. You couldn't lose it if you wanted to. I don't know why you'd want to lose it, but if something happened and you kind of lost your mind and you thought, well, I want out. You can't get out. Sorry. <laughs> you're stuck. You're going to heaven. You could lose your rewards, you know, whatever. I shouldn't just say whatever. That's actually quite a big thing. But you can't be unsaved just like you can't be unborn. Let's wrap this up. Let me ask you a question. Do we indeed have a legitimate reason for the hope of eternal life? Because before Christ, we had no hope. We had no hope at all. That's what Ephesians 2.12 is all about. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That is the current state condition of every human being on planet earth that has not yet received Jesus Christ their Savior. That is the description of their life right there, Ephesians 2.12. So people ask the question, well, is the Bible just a myth? Is faith just a way for weak-minded people to cope with complex issues and thoughts of life? Well, no, of course not. And so verse 19 in chapter 15 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. Paul understood it. He had his feet firmly on the ground. He understood that if it weren't for the fact of the resurrection, and all we had was this Christian life that ultimately sent us to a grave and to dust and to be eaten by worms, this life with Christ only in this life, so that's a miserable life. You say, well, I don't think that sounds really good. I think that even if there weren't eternal life, walking with Jesus is just so sweet. Oh, come on, man. You're kidding yourself. Uh, I think the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul disagree with you. Because the reason why the Christian life, friends, remember back when we read in 2 Corinthians 6? The Christian life is full of suffering. It's full of difficulty. It's full of sacrifice. It's full of you putting up with all kind of obstacles. Why? Because there's a brass ring at the end. Because you're helping people get an eternity. Because you know you have an eternity. So you don't live anymore for this world. You don't live for yourself. You live for Him because there's more. And if you take out of the equation that there's more, then there's only now. And if there's only now, well then, that's not very good. It's just not good enough. And for people to hear this message over and over and over in a country like ours, and they become dull of hearing, and they're not interested in hearing it anymore, and yet they never surrender to it. Imagine. I mean, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, live it up. I mean, this is all you got. And I, and I actually mean that. I, if you're just determined that you're not going to receive Christ, and you even reject the idea there is a hell, well, I don't really care what you reject. There's going to be one, and you're going to be there if you don't repent. But if that's true, and if you're dull of hearing, and if you've heard the gospel 
to the nth degree and you're not going to listen. I truly desire that you enjoy this life. I do. Because this is the closest to heaven you're ever getting. But for a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the closest to hell we're ever getting. It's close to hell. And that's just the truth. That's the fact. That's the way it works. Don't be pious in your religious status. If only just the love of Jesus today, that would be enough. Oh, come on. You're not thinking that through. You're not thinking that through. If it weren't for eternal life, you'd be out partying and drinking and chasing women and getting drunk and doing stupid stuff. You'd take advantage of anybody in your way to get whatever you can get because all you got is now, and by the time you get my age, you realize, man, stuff ain't working like it used to. I mean, I better hurry. You think this world is full of devils now. You take out the hope of the resurrection. Paul understood it. Paul was the worst sinner. Paul was the greatest Christian. That's what he said. We have legitimate hope, friends. We have hope of the resurrection of eternal life for us. Why? Because God's grace is not in vain. Because the apostles' preaching is not in vain, which means the word of God is not in vain. And your faith is not in vain. The question is, do you believe that? Because at the end of the day, look, I can stand up here and get all excited and a bunch of you can get excited with me, but if you happen to be sitting here and you just got invited for the first time and you think this is a little weird, but whatever, God has given to you his word today. Maybe you've been hearing this for 150 times and you've just never surrendered your heart to it. I mean, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're at. This between you and the Lord. I'm just saying... This is for you. This is not just, you know, like an hour-long TV show. I mean, this is for you. This is for you to change your life and surrender and see God do resurrection power, life-changing grace in your life forever. And he'll do it. But you have to surrender to it. There are many infallible proofs. But the choice is yours. So let's pray, and I'll give you the chance to do that.